Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's a lot of topics that I want to talk about, some, some very deep stuff and I think very important stuff. And basically, just to give you a, an overview, I want to talk about spiritual snake poison, right? And the concept of doubt. I want to talk about faith. And I want to talk about consciousness and the knowledge of self, of true self. And we'll see how all these things tie together. Hopefully, these will be very fundamental ideas, but we'll go to a very deep place today um, with God's help. So, so let's dig in. We just had uh, Parshas Yisro, which is the giving of the Torah. So that's a very fundamental chapter in, 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 the, in the history of the world. The revelation of God at Mount Sinai, God speaks to us, and this is, this is an awesome event. So we're going to talk about just sort of like all the things that are leading up to this in terms of, again, the journey of consciousness and the development of the, of the concept of I and the clarification of I, as in who am I, what am I, and also the idea of spiritual identity theft. Meaning to say, what happens when I think I'm someone other than who I am? So these are all sorts of uh, things that we're going to hit on today. Um, and I want to begin with, with a, a very amazing event in, in, in the desert after the Jews uh, left Egypt. So just to set the scene for you. The Red Sea is parted. And interestingly, when we're celebrating the, um, the, the miracle that, that God did over there, now remember, just to put it into context, we've already seen ten awesome miracles in terms of the plagues in Egypt. Right? So, so keep that in mind when you hear the following. After, after God did the miracle for us of the splitting of the Red Sea, it says that, that the people... Feared Hashem, meaning that we had Yira for Hashem. It's always important to clarify that English translation. You see, there's Yira is, is, the, is the Hebrew word. Whenever you deal with English, a lot of times you, you, you risk getting turned off, basically, because you, you've got an, an alien theology being superimposed on our belief system when you've got translations of words. Because translations carry with them all sorts of implications that aren't necessarily intended or implied by the Torah itself. So you have to always be very guarded when you hear the English. Like for me, the, the, the best example, the example that I always uh, react most viscerally to is the word repent. Repent is not a Hebrew word. <laughs> when I hear the word repent, I want to run as far as I can, as fast as I can, in the opposite direction. You know? It's like... What we have is the word tshuva. Tshuva means to return. See, to return, I can return. That's a beautiful concept. That means I, I want to be, I want to return to the essence of who I am. I want to be who I am most. That, that's the concept that gets translated as repent, which is filled with all sorts of horrible implications, in my mind anyway. So, so, so already we're sticking on an, an English translation over here, that the people feared Hashem, this is after the splitting of the Red Sea, meaning to say, the rabbis explain there's, again, the, the word in Hebrew is yira, there's higher yira and lower yira. 
Lower Yira means fear of punishment. That means that I'm afraid if I go seemingly against God's will on some level, that I'll get zapped. Okay? And a lot of people, unfortunately, go through life with this relationship with God. This is the lower level of Yira, thinking that, you know, God's just waiting for me to do something wrong so that he can trip me up. So this is not, it's a very, very low level of spirituality, and this is not really what Judaism is, is talking about. Then you've got what's called a higher level of Yira. The higher level of Yira is not fear of punishment. It's this awesome appreciation that you're in the king's palace, basically. And imagine if you're standing there in this awesome, majestic palace, you don't want to disturb anything. You don't want to leave muddy footprints on the ground. You don't want to knock over any of the incredible vases or intricate, you know, adornments of the palace. So, so that's, and that level of Yira inspires love. Because when you see how awesome God is, then your heart is drawn to him and you just want to connect in a fuller, more beautiful way. And now that you have this level of love for God, you don't want to do anything to disturb that love, to disrupt that love. So that means that you're even more careful. So that breeds an even higher level of Yira. And then that leads to an even awesome more level of love. So that's, that's the idea. And in fact, Yira and Ava, love and this higher level of awe, are called the two wings of the dove. Right? Because you need both of these aspects of your divine service in order to really fly and to be spiritually balanced. And it's also an important check and balance on our own spirituality. Because if you feel like, you know something? Whatever I do, nothing counts. It's all, God is way up there and I'm way down here. And, you know, even if I tried, it doesn't even matter. So that's, that's a misplaced level of Yira. So then you need some vitamin L, right? You need, some, you need some love in terms of your relationship with God. You've got to increase your love. You've got to understand that, no, God loves me, God cares about me, that I count, that I'm meaningful. And then you can balance your, you can balance your service. Or if you go, you know something, it doesn't matter if I do this or if I don't do that. You know why? Because God loves me so much, He doesn't care what I do. He's given me a free pass to do whatever I like. Right? That's too much love. You need a little ear in there. Right? You need a little, well, wait a second, you know, God loves me so much I can, I can sort of like trip in drunk into the palace and knock over all the paintings and, you know, throw up on the couches, you know, because that's how much God loves me. Okay. That person needs some more Yira. So, so again, it's this balance. And you have, to, you have to look at your own activities. And then you have to ask yourself, am I just sort of like taking too many liberties? I need more Yira. Do I feel as though I don't count? And I'm in this existential state of, you know, depression? Then I need more love. Okay. So that's just, that's just an important overview. But let's keep on going. So the people had this Yira for Hashem. This is after the splitting of the sea. So that's an awesome, this is a very high level right now. We're talking about the highest level of Yira. This amazing appreciation. Because remember, when the sea split, the sea didn't just split. All the heavens split. And the people were given this awesome level of prophecy, which was just absolutely, the only thing it could be rivaled by was what's about to come, which is the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. 
So just know that people were just given this amazing, amazing level of prophecy. And now here's what I'm getting to. And they had faith in Hashem and in Moshe, his servant. So, so yeah, you can ask a big question. Wait a second, there were ten plagues in Egypt. Just now the Torah says that they had faith in Hashem? Like, what's going on there? Okay, so there are a lot of explanations given. This is a very big topic. I just want to make you aware of this idea. One of the most beautiful things that, that I saw, and we'll, we'll stay with this for now, but it, there, there are other explanations, and you can learn a lot by focusing in on this passage, is that, you know something? Hashem, the Jewish people, we saw that God is punishing the Egyptians with the ten plagues because they had been horrible and just wicked. But is God necessarily saving me? In other words, you know, the mind and the heart makes many emotional distinctions in terms of relationships. And the people understood that God is punishing the Egyptians, which seemed appropriate. But does that mean that he's saving me? That's, that's another level. So when... The sea split and God saw and the Jewish people saw that that God is saving them. Then their 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 level of faith shot up. It increased to a much higher level because they saw that God is in a direct relationship with us. And that was very meaningful. Okay. Now believe it or not, that's all just background to getting to what I really this next point. Okay? So this next point is, after the sea splits, and you see God's mastery over everything, right? Over all of nature, right? But particularly over water, for goodness sakes, right? Not that anyone's wondering, does God have mastery over water? But, but you'll see why I'm bringing that up in a moment. After we cross the Red Sea and we sing the song of the sea, we, we make this amazing celebration of God's hand. All of a sudden, there's no water to drink. It's really this incredibly ironic turn of events. Not only is there no water to drink, there's no water to drink for three days. Alright? So this is very strange. A very, very strange turn of events, right? And now the Jewish people ask the following question. They say, is Hashem with us? Is He in our midst? Or isn't He? And the next thing that happens, the next line after they say that, is Amalek attacks them. Now, Amalek is the, really, it's the, the, the prototype of the Nazis, basically. You know, this is, the, the Amalekites, Haman, in the Purim story, who tries to exterminate the Jews, is a direct descendant of the king of Amalek. Spiritually speaking, we say that anyone, these Islamic fundamentalists who try to eradicate the Jews and things like that, all of these are spiritual descendants or blood descendants of Amalek. So Amalek is that primary foe of God and the Jewish people. And as soon, so it's very instructive, and the, the rabbis make quite a big point of this. It's very instructive to see what line, you know, what line introduces Amalek coming onto the scene in terms of his attack of us. And what is the line? The Jewish people ask, is God in our midst or not? 
is God with us or not? In other words, it's doubt that brings the attack. Inner doubt brings the external attack. So this correlation between our belief and the events that unfold in front of us, you see a very interesting correlation. But let's go more deeply into this notion of doubt. Because you can, by the way, there's a very strong correlation, which I I don't want to leave the topic without mentioning. It's a very famous gematria, which is the word doubt, suffolk, in Hebrew, is the same gematria as the word amalek. So, yeah, it's an amazing thing. Number 240. And, in fact, I I sort of came up with a mnemonic, how you can remember that it's number 240. Uh, You know, you start with doubt. Let's say that's two. The doubt doubles and gives you double the anxiety. It goes from two to four. And what are you left with? Nothing. Zero. So, two, four, zero. It's just a way of remembering it. Anyway, so, so again, and we're going to trace the spiritual roots of doubt in a moment back to the Garden of Eden. But let's just stay with the bigger question for now, which is, after the splitting of the Red Sea, how could they ask, how could we ask ourselves such a question, is God with us or not? How could we even ask ourselves this question? And so, I think that that it's very understandable, first of all. And, and I think it's very deep. It's really, we're really getting deep, deep, deep into the psychology of, of human beings here. You see, the question wasn't, does God exist or not? That's not what they were asking. They said, is God in our midst or not? Is God with us or not? So, I'm sharing with you my understanding. They're not questioning the existence of God. They know God exists. But you know something? Imagine, you know, I'll tell you a story from my life, okay? I, I was, I hadn't gotten engaged with my wife yet, but we were dating very seriously. And I went to Israel in the middle of this to, um, it was Lag Baomer, and I really, I wanted to be by Maron, by the, the gravesite, the cover of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai on Lagba Omer. It's a big event. That's his yurt site. And um, it's a big celebration in Israel, a very amazing day. Um, and I wanted to go. And so I went and I was so consumed with the, with the trip and everything like this. And this is sort of before emails and this is before cell phones, really. You know, and you know, the idea that you, you take a trip, you're not necessarily in touch every you know, minute. And so I was into the trip, and before Shabbos I, I called. I'd only really been there for a few days, like three days actually. Coincidentally, I mean, that correlates with what we're reading in the Torah, because they didn't have water for three days. And I called, I called my wife to, my, my fiancé, I guess, or not even my fiancé yet, to wish her a good Shabbos. And, and she was sort of like stunned that I hadn't called sooner. And she said something, I, I don't remember the exact words, but she said, you know, I wondered if you forgot about me, or I wondered if this whole thing had been a dream, something like this. You know? So, and then I flew back right after Shabbos and I asked her to marry me. 
you know? But, but here's the point. After there's been a level of extreme closeness between two people, and then one of the two disappears from the scene. Doubt. 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 It's not a question, does that person who I've just been spending the last X amount of time with exist or not? You know they exist. You want to know, are they with you or not? Was that real? Was that level of closeness that I experienced real? Or did it just go away? So the Jewish people are asking at this moment where there's no water, after this amazing display of closeness, where we couldn't rationalize anymore, well, there were miracles, but they were against the Egyptians. They weren't necessarily for me. Right? You know, and people can... People are very strange emotionally. Like, I know someone who is receiving, uh, you know, gifts of money from someone. They were in financial need, and they were receiving gifts of money from someone. And the person responded, you know what, they have to give 10% of their income anyway. So, you know, like, that, that was their response. In other words, it wasn't an, it wasn't a, it wasn't, ex, an, they didn't experience it as an expression of closeness. You. you see, they, so people, people are very complicated when you get to the emotional level and into relationships. And what is all of religion? What is all of Torah? It's our relationship with God. You know, sometimes I refer to this talk on Sunday mornings that I give right now as, as couples therapy between us and God. You know, because that is a lot of what it means to be in this world, is to getting that relationship down and getting it into an optimal place. So, and, and a relationship has to be worked on. You know, my, my dad was a practicing psychologist for 50 years, and he'd say so simply, relationships are like plants. If you don't water them, they die. And, you know, if it's true with another human being, believe me, it's a thousand times more true with you and God. If you don't cultivate and work on that relationship, you know. So the Jewish people weren't asking, does God exist or not? It's this, this aspect of doubt. Is God really with me or not? Because if he were really with me, how could I be going without water at this point? So, amazingly, and this is getting very deep, the Torah says, the Talmud explains, that whenever you talk about water, you're really talking about Torah. That water always means Torah, basically. And that the Jewish people had gone three days without learning Torah. And that Torah learning is so essential, it's so life-giving, that it's like drinking water. That you can't survive without it. That's why it's being expressed in such a fundamental way. That you, 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 you can't live without it. And so, and so we experience this doubt. Now, I want to get into the, the, roots, the roots of this doubt. Alright? Because Rabbi Wilson points out something Really amazing. Really, truly amazing. So again, I told you that, that, that Amalek, that, that this concept of doubt has its roots in the Garden of Eden. 
from the snake, actually. And that the snake actually put this into us. And we're going to explain that more, more deeply. But I just want you to see something on the level of, um, of the letters. Because remember, every single letter in the Torah is absolutely essential. And it's all the building blocks of reality. So let me show you in the words something that I think is, is actually quite startling, actually. So it's right here, uh, chapter 17, verse 7. If you want to look in the Hebrew, in the, in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, it's on page uh, 390. So, so it says, I'll read you the Pasuk in English, the verse. He called the place Maseu Meriva because of the contention, the fighting of the children of Israel and because of their test to Hashem saying, is God among us or not? So the question is, yes or no? God's here or he's not here? So in Hebrew, the word for that God is here, as it's used in the, in the, in the verse, is Hayesh. Okay? And the word for he's not here is Ayin. So God is either here or he's not here. Yes or no. Hayesh or Ayin. Right? You with me? Now, if you look in, in the story of, of the Garden of Eden, now this is chapter 3 now, verse 13, it's on page 16 in the, in the art scroll, Chumash, you see something amazing. God says to Chava, he says to her, what did you do? Right? Referring to the eating of the fruit from the tree of knowledge. What did you do? And Chava says, the snake deceived me. Okay? So the, the action word there is deceived. Right? And, and the word in Hebrew is Vahashiani. That's what the snake did to her. Vahashiani. Okay? Now listen to this amazing thing. Rabbi Wilson points out, if you take the words that we just said, the doubt that we experienced, is God with us or not? Hayesh or Ayin, yes or no? If you take those two words, Hayesh and Ayin, and you take those letters and rearrange them, it spells Vahashiani. The snake deceived me. That he deceived me. That he put his deception in me. So here you see the spiritual roots of doubt come from the snake. So now let's go deeper into that. Kabbalistically speaking, we have this concept. It's called um, the Zuhama. Zuhama. Zuhama is the name of the spiritual toxin that the snake put into us. He injected this aspect of doubt in us, which is, again, we knew that God existed, right? Like, my, it, it, it was very clear that God existed. But this whole question of doubt after we eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, all of a sudden twists everything up in our mind, and now we, we question. Now we question. It's not so clear anymore. Now, when we went to the Garden of Eden, or rather, when we came to Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai, the Zuama, the spiritual toxin 
left the Jewish people. And it says that we reach the spiritual level of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. Okay? Now you see this, actually, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, if you, if you read the, 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 the Jewish prayer book carefully, you know, you, you, you see all the references to these things, because you say, well... The Zuhama, do we really, I mean, this sounds really pretty far out. I've never even heard of the Zuhama. I mean, is this something that's like mainstream Judaism? Or we're going to talk about in a, in a little while, we're going to talk about reincarnation. Is that, do, do we really believe in reincarnation? And this is like, you know, the Art Scroll Sitter, this is, this is mainstream Torah Judaism. This is center of the road. So, so if it's in here, you can be pretty confident that this is, this is pretty much what we hold, you know? So here you see something very interesting. Every year we do something called we count the Omer. So starting with the second night from Pesach, Pesach remembers when we leave, Passover is when we leave Egypt, and it's 50 days leading up to getting the Torah at Mount Sinai. And so there's this countdown. Every single day we count toward getting to Mount Sinai. And what did we say? We said at Mount Sinai, the, the Zuhama left the Jewish people when we received the Torah. And there's a, there's a prayer that we say in, the, in this edition of the Art Scrolls on page 284. It's at the end of counting the Omer. Right when we say the, the Svira Day. We say, and please God may it be your will that, that your people Israel be cleansed of their contamination. That's how it's translated in English. But what's the, what's the Hebrew word? Mezuhamasam. From their zuhama. From their spiritual contamination. So here you see exactly what we've been talking about right here in the, right here in the center. You know, again, just because while we're on the topic, right before a person goes to bed, there's a beautiful prayer that you say. And... Um, where you forgive anyone who may have bothered you during the day. You let go of your anger. It's a very healthy, psychologically and certainly spiritual thing to do. And, and just, just to uh, show you what I was referring to a moment ago, we say, Master of the universe, I hereby forgive anyone who angered me or who antagonized, or who antagonized me or who has sinned against me, whether against my body, my property, my honor, against anything of mine whether he did so accidentally, willfully, carelessly, or purposely, whether through speech, deed, thought, or notion. All right? Now, that's, 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 that's a pretty all-inclusive bit of forgiveness, but it keeps on going. Whether in this transmigration or another transmigration. That means Gilgul. That's the Hebrew word that's used. That, that's talking directly about reincarnation. Not only do you forgive every single person, whatever they may have done to you during that day, if that person affected me who I interacted with in a previous lifetime, I'm also forgiving them. So again, I'm just trying to show you where you see these ideas and that these are totally mainstream Jewish beliefs. Okay? Okay. But again, let, let's go further. So, so at Mount Sinai, the Zuhama, this spiritual toxin, this doubt, this doubt, because remember we said, is God with us or is he not with us? 
And we showed how those two words, you know, the essence of it, Hayesh, Ayin, that those things form, those two words form to make this word Vahashiani, which is the deception that the snake put into us, this level of confusion. Okay? Now let's talk more about what this level of confusion is. So the Gemara discusses the seven different names of the Eight Sahara. And one of the names, the seventh and most spiritually toxic name of the Yetzirah is called Secret, Safon. Secret. Okay? What does that mean? Hidden. Like, what is this idea of hidden? So basically, this is the concept of spiritual identity theft. The Yetzirah comes, and it uses the word I. So, to give an example, I want to eat a ham sandwich. You hear this voice. I, I am drawn to this. I want to go after that. I want to do this. But it's not really you talking. It's the Yetzirah impersonating you, the evil inclination, the snake, if you will, impersonating you and expressing its desires in your voice. And so, so a person gets very, very confused. Who am I? What is it that I want? What is it that I desire? Or... Since you hear, I want to do this, you think, oh, I guess I want to do this. Right? But is that your true self? Is that your true self speaking? So what did we say? The Zuhama went away at Mount Sinai. So where do we see the rectification of self at Mount Sinai? This is amazing, in in my opinion. The very first word that God speaks when he gives the Torah is, Anochi. Anochi means I. In other words, it's a whole clarification of who the I is. Who you actually are is being restored to you. You know, amazingly, the first word that we say when we wake up in the morning, the first phrase that we say, every, uh, that every person says, or that we're supposed to say, is we say, Moda'ani, lefanecha, Moda'ani, we we. The way it's normally translated is, I gratefully thank you, God, for basically waking me up and restoring my soul and giving me another day of life. Every single day is an aspect of the resurrection of the dead, believe me. It it really is, you know, because one of the things that we do, the first thing that a person should do when they wake up in the morning is you go to the bathroom and you wash your hands with water. Have to do that. It's very important to do One on one hand, one on the other hand, and three times on each hand. Very important. And there's something called tumas mes. It's called the impurity of death, basically. It's a spiritual state that you have to get rid of. And so, so interestingly, when a person leaves a cemetery, you also wash your hands. Because there's also this aspect of tumas mes, this impurity of death that's sort of around. So, 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 and if you notice, at the, at the gates of Jewish cemeteries, there's always places to wash your hands. That's what it's there for. It's built into the cemetery, these, these hand-washing places. So you wash it off. So, so you, you, you think, it's, it's, you think it's, there's no parallel between waking up in the morning, getting your soul back? You're, it's a, there's a resurrection of the dead that's happening every single morning. It's directly parallel. So you, you, you thank God, thank God that you've given me back my soul, that you've given me another day, right? But listen to this, that's, that's the level of thanks, but, but 
I want to say something else. That's already deep, but maybe this is deeper. Mode in Hebrew also means to admit. Okay? Um, people say, like in, in Torah circles, when they, when they agree with you or admit something, they go, Amode, Amode, I admit, I admit it. Right? So, so, so now, what's the very first thing that we say when we wake up in the morning? Mode ani. I admit that the I is you, God. <laughs> I admit it. There's no duality. It's you and it's only you. This whole concept, are you there, are you not there? Modani, ah. I admit, I admit that it's you. I admit that you're, you are existence. That's how I'm beginning the day. With this fundamental recognition of your existence and your unity. Right? Now, now I want to go further. This thought came to me on Shabbos and I got excited about it. So what's the fixing? We say the fixing is the, is, is the giving of the Torah. Because God says, Anochi, that's the ultimate clarification. Right? But then, interestingly, we then plunge back down. We get the Zuhama back with the, with the, with the Chet Ego, with the, with the incident with the worshipping of the golden calf. And if you compare the whole incident of the golden calf and the eating of the tree of knowledge... From the, from the Eitz Adas, you'll see they're almost exactly the same episode. One was taking place on an individual level, one is taking place on a national level. But the comparisons are, they're, they're just replete with comparisons. Like we said, that when we got to Torah at Mount Sinai, the, the sages teach that we reached the level of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, before they ate from the tree of knowledge. We know that death came into the world when we ate from the tree of knowledge. After we received the Torah, we were immortal. And it says that part of our fixing for the, for the sin of the golden calf was to give up our immortality. So again, you see, death comes back into the world in both instances. Those are just a couple of similarities. There are more similarities in terms of what the exact nature of the test was. But anyway, and we see that Torah is the fixing. But let me show you in another place where Torah is the fixing. So this thought came to me. It says, is God with us or not? Is he in our midst or not? Because, again, remember, psychologically, there's perhaps, if you, if you don't know, like, 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 let me ask you something. Imagine you want to get married so badly, right? And you wonder, does my soulmate, does, does she even exist? Does he even exist? That's one level of questioning, right? But perhaps, perhaps... A more painful form of questioning would be if you met someone and you fell in love with that person and then that person left you. And then you're wondering, does that, is that person with me or not? Right? Because it's perhaps a more painful and a deeper form of questioning because you know they exist, but seemingly you don't have them. So, so after the sea splits, we see, we know, it says in the Torah itself, we believed in God. We believed. We knew God's there for sure. But then there's no water for three days. Is God with us or not? I met my soulmate. We, 
We, we had this love affair, but now they're gone. They flew the coop. Is this? It's more painful. It's more painful. So this question, yes or no, is God with us or not? So the word for not is ayin. Aleph, yud, nun. Ayin. It means not. Okay? Now listen to this. Do you know in Aramaic, which is the language of the Gomorrah, the language of the Talmud, you want to hear something really wild? That same word, ayin, aleph, yud, nun, means yes. In, it's pronounced in in Aramaic. And it means yes. So here in Hebrew, it means no. And in Aramaic, it means yes. So what I'd like to say is the following thing. I'd like to make a, a drusha based on this. You know, homiletically speaking. If you want to turn your confusion, your doubt, your no into yes, if you want to turn your no into yes, if you want to turn the ayin into in, right? How do you do it? With Gomorrah study. In other words, by studying the Torah, by studying and learning, you turn ayin into in. You turn doubt into yes. Doubt into knowledge. Doubt into belief. See, remember, it says when we didn't have water for three days. The rabbis explain that we didn't learn Torah for three days because water always means Torah in the Torah. So you see that there's a direct correlation between lack of study and increase of doubt. Not only that, but there's a spiritual principle that the rabbis bring that if you leave the Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. Very interesting. Very interesting. A person has to make a Seder for themselves. They have to make a regular, regular, you know, platform or schedule of study. And if for one person it will be once a week and then you increase, you increase. Should be every day. Everyone should strive to be learning every day. And you know something? There are certain books that I highly, highly recommend. And the reason why I love them so much, besides the fact that they're wonderful, is because they're divided up into chapters that are literally three lines long. Or five lines long. And, and no, I don't care how busy you are. I don't care if you're the president of the world. You've got time to read five lines. You know, especially when those five lines contain a very, very deep thought. So, so, uh, so one of these books is called Bringing Heaven Down to Earth, 365 Meditations from the Lubavitcher Rebbe by Rabbi Tzvi Friedman. Awesome book. Awesome, awesome book. And you can read one of those a day. And there's another book that I also highly recommend called Hasidic Wisdom by Rabbi Dov Elkins. Also... Awesome book. You know, again, very, very short, very short, clear ideas. But the point being that a person has to be learning on a regular basis. That that's the transformation of doubt into closeness. Of ayin into in. Okay? But now I want to go further. I'm sorry? Oh yeah, you've got to, there's a whole... Davening, talking to God, very important. Talking to God is, is 
as are more crucial than anything. Because can you imagine, you know, uh, how long have you been married for? 20 years. Are you close with your wife? I'm so close with my wife. Do you talk to your wife? Actually, we never talk. <laughs> oh, you're so close to your wife? You never talk to your wife? We never talk. Can you imagine a person who, even imagining that they've got a relationship with God and they don't talk to God? Right? And most people, if they do, if they do um, just the prayers, I don't know that that actually counts as talking to God. Because you're, you're reading something that aren't your own words, in a phraseology that you can't connect with, and even though the, the words are replete with depths and depths and depths of, of, of information and, and all sorts of things, you're not in touch with them. So it's like, you know, like, imagine if, here, here's my wife, and here's my relationship with my, with my wife. You know what I read to her? I read her um, pages that I print out from MapQuest. You know, turn right at Sepulveda, take that one-eighth of a mile, you know, to the 101. It's like, do you talk to your wife? I do talk to my wife. You know, merge onto the 405, right? That's not called talking to your wife. <laughs> you have to use your own words. So, yeah, yes, for sure, davening, but, but real davening. I, but I would, you know, I would say talking to God in your own language, like Rabbi Nachman talk, uh, refers to. That, that one has to speak to God as like you would speak to your very dear friend, to your very close friend. And all these things are, are all part of this. But also Torah learning, because you need that rectification of the eye. Because when the snake comes, our, the whole... We're born into this neurotic human condition where we don't know what's right, and, and it's like right and wrong are a constant moving target in our mind. We don't know. It's, it's like a whole scramble. So, so we need to have it focused. That's why it says that when God, that God carved the words into the luchos, into the tablets. And the word for carving in Hebrew is the same word as freedom. So it says, the rabbis say, don't say God carved it, God made us free. So wait a second. If you think about it, if I carve something into an object, the, it's the opposite of free, right? It can't move. So what are you saying? Carving and freedom are the same thing. So I heard uh, 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 Rabbi Carmi say, say something very beautiful, that, that in terms of um, human neurosis, see, what is human neurosis? What do I mean by that? Because we're constantly wondering, is this the right thing? Maybe that's the right thing. Maybe that's the right thing. Maybe that's the right thing. It's a moving target. We don't know. Once a person has clarity and something is carved, something is fixed, then they can all of a sudden be free of that constant wondering. And then you're either doing it or you're not doing it. You're, you're trying your best at that point. But at least you have a fixed goal. And a person has to have that level of a fixed goal and then they can proceed, you know, and then you do your best, whatever it is. So that's the correlation between carving and freedom, between having that level of I fixed. What is I? What is I? Okay. Now, I want to go deeper into this, this notion of why life is confusing. Because we're talking about all sorts of confusing things. We're talking about doubt. And we're talking about it on, a, on an internal level, you know, in terms of just sort of like 
the notion of self. But now I want to talk about it on a more sort of macro level, on, on just sort of like the, 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 the broader landscape of life. And this is a thought that came to me a while back, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's intriguing, I think. So, so why is life so confusing? Okay? So, so in, in, in this Parsha of the giving of the Torah, in Parsha's Yisra, you see something at the very beginning of the Parsha. Yisra is coming with Sipporah, Moshe's wife, and Moshe's kids. And Moshe does something very amazing. Even though this is like maybe three people, five people, I don't know what it is. It's a small group of people who are coming. The, Moshe leaves all of Israel to come and to greet them. And then it says Moshe bows down to Yisra. And hopefully we're going to explain on a, on, a, on, a, on a Kabbalistic level what the Zohar says, what that meant, that Moshe bowed down to Yisra. Because there was a fixing going on there in terms of their relationship. But I, I don't want to get into too much depth with that. But just, just mark it in your mind that, that, that Moshe bows down to, to Yisra there. Okay? And so you have this whole chapter between Moshe and his father-in-law Yisra, and Yisra gives him some advice about setting up court systems and everything like that. Moshe takes the advice. And then you have the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now listen to this. Rashi and the majority of commentators say the following. That chapter, if you will, that episode of Yisro coming to greet Moshe actually took place after the giving of the Torah. In other words, in terms of the chronological sequence of the Torah, that episode is out of order chronologically. Now, the Ramban says no. That that episode happened before the giving of the Torah, just as it appears in your, in your five books, in your Chumash. Okay? So, a disagreement. But, whatever the truth is in terms of the chronology of that event, the Gemara, the Talmud, has a claw, a foundation, which is that, that the Torah is, in certain places, out of order. And so, God will choose to arrange certain topics in certain places, maybe in order to highlight a thematic unity, as opposed to just a strict chronological sequence. Because the Torah, hopefully we all know by now, is not purely a history book. It's the infinite compressed into the finite. It's dealing on multiple, multiple, multiple levels. So how God chooses to highlight different teachings, sometimes he'll take something out of sequence and put it in a different place. That's just the way God chose to organize the Torah. Okay, but there are deeper implications in terms of our own life as well, which I want to highlight right now. Now listen to this. So we say that the Torah is out of order. And a person is compared to a Torah. Okay, and there are many comparisons between a person and a Torah. One comparison that's very clear is that the Gomorrah says people are foolish because they kiss a Torah scroll but they don't kiss a Torah scholar who's a living Torah. Okay, there's, 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 one, there's one comparison. I'll give you another comparison, which I find very beautiful. There's a custom, a very holy custom, that when a man's wife is pregnant, toward the end of her pregnancy, the man will open the curtain to the, to the Torah, the parochus to the Torah ark, 
and he'll open up the doors, and then he'll take out the Torah scroll. And that's a blessing for, a, an, for an easy birth or an easier birth. Right? So there you see that the imagery is, is quite striking and quite parallel to the birthing process. The, the doors are open, and the Torah scroll, meaning the baby, is taken out. So there you see on another level where a person is compared to a Torah. So, and there are other comparisons as well. A very, very deep comparison is the fact that the rabbis say that we are composed anatomically of 613 different parts, just like there's 613 mitzvahs, and that each sinew, each part of us, correlates with a different mitzvah in the Torah, and that it goes further than that. It actually says that we have 248, see there's sinews or organs, here it is, Three, and 300, 365 sinews, which correlate with the lotases, the, the thou shall nots, and 248 different organs, which correlate with the positive commandments. So in other words, the, the anatomy of a person and the Torah scroll itself, the contents of the Torah, is very precise. So again, here we see very clearly that a person is like a Torah. Okay? Now we can connect these thoughts. Listen to this. So what did we say? We said that a Torah is out of order. And a person is like a Torah. So you know what that means? Our life on a very deep level sometimes is out of order, chronologically speaking. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Imagine you have an episode, and we all have these episodes in our lives, where it's sort of like, why did that happen? What is that? Or, another example of this, if you see someone and you have an instantly strong feeling for them, an instant dislike, or an instant like, that's very strong, sometimes these things are dealing with past lives. Alright, you're dealing with previous incarnations. And they're working themselves out, whatever fixing that needs to take place is working itself out at that moment in your life. So why is this thing so confusing? Because all of a sudden, you're going from this chapter into your life into a previous chapter in your life. And to you, you don't see the correlation because you don't, you're not in touch with, with this macro level of what's going on all the time. So in other words, or, or I'll give you another example. All of a sudden, you meet this person. It's like, why do you have to meet this person? How do you know your grandchild's not going to marry their grandchild? And a connection has to be made between the two of you. So in other words, this event is for the future. It's not for right now. So sometimes you're dealing with the past. Sometimes you're dealing with the future. It's not always chronologically arranged in terms of your own life. And now, I'll get back to this whole portion of Yisro and, and Moshe. Remember I told you that there's a debate as to whether or not that's in the right portion or not, right? In the right order or not. Whether they actually came before the, the giving of the Torah, like it appears. Most people say it's out of order. Well, listen to this. Not only is it out of order, but the Zohar says that Moshe and Yisro are the Gilgul of Cain and Abel, of Cain and Hevel. And that there was a rectification going on 
in terms of Moshe bowing down to them at that moment. What was the rectification? Very interesting. You know, if you look into the story, and the story is super deep, I don't even pretend to understand it, but basically, basically, Cain, Cain brings a sacrifice to God. And it's his idea. Like this idea that, you know what, we have, we've been blessed with this stuff, and it's really great, and God is really good. And you know what, what if we were to like, take some of this stuff and give it back to God, just as a show of thanks? That's an awesome idea. That's a completely radical innovation in terms of heavenly service. Completely radical. Now, Hevel says, ah, if we're going to do that anyway, why, let's give our best stuff. But you know something? I deal in, in a creative industry, right? Now, let me tell you the difference between those two levels of ideas in terms of innovation. It's like someone says, I got this idea for a TV series. We have four friends, and they live in an apartment. And the next guy says, what if we have five friends? <laughs> it's not a substantially bigger idea compared to that first idea. Okay? It might make it a much better idea. Uh, maybe even a, maybe it'll make the difference. But in terms of the breakthrough, in terms of creativity... It's not the breakthrough idea. The first idea is the breakthrough idea. Okay? So, Hevel gets his sacrifice. Remember, Hevel is the one who says, let's give our best stuff. His sacrifice is accepted. Kind's isn't. That was God's way of saying, you know what? Hevel, go with Hevel's emendation. Go with Hevel's addition. That you should give your best stuff. That was God's way of saying, that's, that's, that's the way to do it. Okay? But you know what? Hevel never thanks Cain. Hevel never acknowledges to Cain that this was your idea and it was a great idea. And you know what? Imagine, and this is just me speculating right now, imagine if Hevel had gone up to Cain because Cain gets all bent out of shape. It's completely bent out of shape. When God doesn't take his sacrifice, but takes Hevel's sacrifice. How bent out of shape? It leads to the first murder in humanity. Right? That's, that's pretty bent out of shape. Okay? He kills him. Imagine for a moment if Hevel came up to Cain and said, Cain, thank you. Thank you. You know, you... I, yeah, okay, I made a change, whatever it is, it doesn't even matter. You, you came up with something awesome and God, God approves of it and, it and it was your idea. Imagine how that relationship would have changed. Kind of said, you know, I was so depressed, but you know what, now that you mention it, you know, God basically is approving this idea of sacrifices and that was my idea, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. You know what, next time, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do like you did. I'm going to bring my best stuff. Can, do you hear? Do you hear how fundamental the transformation of the relationship is? But he never thanked him. He never, he never acknowledged it. Okay? Now, what's coming here? Moshe is coming. Moshe is the reincarnation of Hevel. And he's bowing down to Cain. This is the acknowledgement that Hevel never gave to Cain. Alright? So... So in our own lives, 
in our own lives, you know, acknowledge, appreciate, be grateful, because it will undermine, it will undermine jealousy, it will counteract jealousy, it will counteract resentment. If someone is, in a, is a partner in your idea, acknowledge what they did. This empowers people and it creates unity, as opposed to murder. All right. So now, what, what, again, let's get back to this idea of life being out of order. But, but basically, I wanted to go into that to show you that, that not only is the whole chapter of Yisro chronologically out of order, but it's chronologically out of order and it's dealing with a past life incident. Something amazing, you know? Not only that, but now let's get even a little bit deeper still. The idea that, that, that you can fix something backwards in time. In other words, my present action can change something that happened previously. And this is one of the awesome, awesome aspects of tshuva, of attaching yourself to God, is that you rectify your past. We think, how could it be? How could, if something happened, how can it unhappen? But on some level, on some level, it does, it does happen like that. And, and I'll give you the, the logic of it, if you will. Everyone would agree, I am the culmination of everything I've done up until this moment in life. Every single person is the sum total of all of your actions leading up to this moment. Right? Now imagine I used to eat hamburgers on Yom Kippur. Right? But now I don't eat hamburgers on Yom Kippur. Right? So somehow, my eating hamburgers on Yom Kippur led me to a place where I realized, you know something? I shouldn't eat hamburgers on Yom Kippur. So those past mistakes have contributed to my present understanding, which is one of clarity and focus and attachment. Which means that those past mistakes, ironically, have led me to the right path. So if they lead you to the right path, in retrospect, they even can become mitzvahs. So here you see this, this event with Yisro and Moshe happened after the giving of Mount Sinai of the Torah at Mount Sinai. But now that we have the Torah at Mount Sinai and we have the tools to fix, all of a sudden that incident happens and it's placed at a previous time. Because it's hinting at this event that took place before is now been rectified through the power of the Torah. Now, I want to say something maybe even deeper. I said earlier, the Ramban says that, no, that took place actually before Mount Sinai. So there's a disagreement when it happened. Okay? So you see, both things are taking place simultaneously. Let's say you walk into a business meeting and something absolutely freaky happens, and it's really a past life thing that's being enacted at that moment, or you're given an opportunity to fix that past life thing at that moment, but you know what? That business meeting in your present life is also taking place at that present moment. Both things are true. It's, chrono it's chronologically true, and on a deeper level, it's also true. Both things are taking place at the same time. You see, because God is beyond time. 
So you can actually make one action which is impacting different levels and different time zones, if you will. And I'll give you an example, a very clear, simple muscle that, that, that popped into my head. You see that children do this. You take a piece of paper and you fold it over into a few different layers. And then you cut out a paper doll. And then you unfold the paper and what do you have? You just cut one paper doll, but you have three paper dolls. <laughs> right? So your actions at one moment, they can be true for that moment while simultaneously fixing other dimensions in time, whatever is up for grabs at that moment. So the answer is not thinking. Is that a past life? Is that for the future? Whatever it is. The answer is be in the moment. All of this is to give you a broader perspective of what's on the line every single moment. But the teaching is not to, not to not to be in the moment, but to be in the moment. And when God gives us the Torah, when he gives it to Moshe, and we'll finish up with this, this is chapter 24, verse 12, God says to Moshe, come up here and be here. Come up to Mount Sinai and remain here. Be here. So the Moshe Tzarevi, I mentioned Rabbi Wolfson earlier. Rabbi Wolfson is a Moshe Tzar Chassid. The Moshe Tzarevi says the following. What does it mean to be here? You can't, when you're interacting with people, when you're at an event or whatever it is, don't just be there physically. Really be there. Be there with your thoughts as well. Because as the Baal Shem Tov says, where your thoughts are is where you are. Okay, so you have to be present. And that's how God told Moshe to receive the Torah, to be present. So these are all tools for fixing the moment. But if you're present and you're in the moment, the reach of your deeds will spread all through time and fix absolutely everything. So Shem should bless us that we should understand again that, that the doubt that we experience often it's just a questioning of, is God really with us? I think deep in our hearts, if we look at the massive complexity of the world and the fact that it runs very smoothly, that there is a God, that there is a God. But sometimes, and we haven't even begun to even sort through these issues enough to even ask ourselves these questions, the real question that we're experiencing on a more emotional level is God with me or not? Right? And now this is, this is sort of part and parcel of the human condition. And you want to know, like, who am I? When is it just this other voice, this spiritual identity theft, the, the snake, so to speak, the Hashiani, this combination of Hayashin and Ayin mixed together? When, it, when is it really I? To understand the Torah was given with the word Anochi. And in fact, there are Torah commentators that say that's the only thing that God said at Mount Sinai, was just Anochi. And an even deeper level, by the way, is that some Kabbalists say that God just pronounced the letter Aleph of Anochi. And that's really way out, because the letter Aleph is silent. So, but anyway, this notion of the true I, and to having that fixed target, and having that clarity, and then moving forward the best that we can to fix our souls and to fix this world. Okay.